Welcome to the Global Market Outlook 2023, brought to you by RBC Capital Markets. In this audio cast, you'll hear insights from Graham Tufts, Harold Barra, and Ram Amarnath, co-heads of our financial sponsors group, as they talk about their outlook for private equity in the year ahead. Great to see you guys again. Um, so, Harold, how are you feeling about the outlook for the next year in light of the macro at the moment? You know, Graham, that's what everyone's asking. Um, and it's... Uh, And the short answer is, I'm not sure. Um, 21 was such a phenomenal year on so many levels, but it's hard to see it replicating. 22 is actually, in a lot of ways, much more normal if you actually look at the numbers. And so if you think about it, let's just level set before we talk about 23. So 21 was kind of that, the perfect conditions, right? Fiscal, monetary, stimulus, policy, so conducive to deal-making, low interest rate environment, uh, a lot of pipeline and backlog from COVID, issuers sitting on the sidelines, private equity firms wanting to sell assets, waiting. All of a sudden, they saw that window. Plenty of financing, liquidity. A lot of financing. And then at the same time, when private equity firms saw how conducive it was to deal-making, as they thought about exits, they brought forward things that they, you know, assets they probably wouldn't have sold for a year. And so 21 was just this confluence of unbelievable conditions. Everyone knows the numbers. Coming into 22, no one expected it to repeat 21. However, I don't think we all expected, you know, what we had in this year, which this year has just been incredibly volatile. And everyone knows that it's not just about the stock market. It's about it from our, from our asset class, from our client base. Private equity firms have tried to navigate these waters. And what we've seen is $800 billion of deal volume, you know, which is other, in the last 10 years, that's the highest uh, that we've seen other than last year. So still a very strong year on the M&A front, very strong year on our clients deploying capital. On the exit side, that's really where we saw a major difference in 2022, where the conditions were not conducive to monetizing some of the previous investments, similar to, to 21. We'll talk more about that in the podcast. As I look forward to 23, I'll, I think, and this is what we should spend some time talking through, it's going to come down to global, the global economic environment and what that outlook is. I think if we... If, if we start to see real headwinds and signs of a deep recession, I think it's really going to impact the ability of our clients to monetize those assets and even with dramatic amounts of dry powder, have the conviction to deploy. If we see a little bit more of a leveling off of you know, the Fed, interest rates, geopolitical environment in Europe calming down a little bit, I think there's a lot of opportunity. It's interesting, isn't it, that reduced velocity of capital and assets changing hands has a big knock-on effect. And then when you overlay the macro outlook, it becomes a lot harder to predict what 23 holds. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you guys, Graham and Harold. Uh, great points and great introduction, um, Harold. You know, looking into 23, what's actually interesting about our client base, though, is if you look at the history, not just 21, but you look at the history of a lot of our clients where they've made some of their best returns and some of their best investments is going into environments like we're about to go into, right? So on the one hand, there's a lot of uncertainty with respect to everything that you just mentioned. On the other hand, I think you're going to see a lot of our clients look at a lot of opportunity because while some of the numbers that you mentioned are very large, our clients are sitting on $4 trillion of dry powder today. So I think with this kind of environment, I'm curious how you guys think about, well, what are they going to be doing now and where are they going to be putting all that money? 
Yeah, no, Ram, it's a it's a great point. I'll tell you, you know, you know the tagline on all these advertisements that says the past is not a predictor of the future. <laughs> I think that to your point, I think that that does not apply to the statement that private equity firms, if you look at the vintage of funds deployed during periods of economic uncertainty or economic pullbacks, always, always outperform funds deployed during periods of calm or economic growth. And to your point, with the dry powder, but more importantly also, I would argue, with the diversification of asset classes, certainly versus where the industry was, let's say, a decade ago. Right now, the private equity industry is $11.5 trillion, and that's now cut across all kinds of asset classes that, quite frankly, didn't exist 10 years ago, whether it's obviously the traditional buyout, but just think about infrastructure. Think about credit, right? Real estate, growth. And so, to your point, Ram, as they think about opportunities and ability to deploy across all those different asset classes, pools of capital they didn't have even during the last financial crisis, I think it's a really compelling time for a lot of them. Yeah, it definitely is. And I think that one of the interesting features as we move forward into 23 is going to be the ingenuity that they show. And mm-hmm. it's it's an investive class that historically has always been very innovative dealing with the challenges that the markets throw up. I think the challenge for us as bankers is to continue to find the right ideas, to continue to find ways to finance these deals because the barriers to to getting some of these transactions done are actually more based around the financial aspect of it than necessarily the amount of money that they have to deploy. I I think, Graham, that's a great point. And that goes back to the points I think that Harold was making before as well. When you look into environments like this and some of the client base that we're talking about, ingenuity, innovation has always been, you know, important. And the classic LBO and just making returns on leverage, I think, is not going to be the playbook. It hasn't been, but I think going into this environment, it really won't be. So some of the other things that our clients can bring to the table with respect to operating expertise or other forms of capital or, you know, other ways to really drive those returns are going to be paramount uh, in terms of differentiation. Yeah, well, that's a great segue, Ram uh, and Graham, to, you know, talking about what we're going to see in 2023, right? That's how you first began, Graham, with the question mark you had. It's like, what's what's the new normal? What's the deal environment? Mm. I think we've established that our clients are pretty excited about it, especially the ones that have their fundraising in the rearview mirror. And we can talk about fundraising a little bit later. But those that have the dry powder, and there's many of them, uh, much of them are the mega funds, are certainly excited about going into this year. But I think we should talk about the types of deals because and, how we're, how, and that creativity around how they're actually going to get them done. Um, because just simple math... We've seen senior secured cost of debt pretty much double this year from 5% to 10%. You can do the math. At the end of the day, you know, we, our client Sweet. base is looking to make the right returns. And so one of two things has to give. One, you over-equitize transactions, at least in the near term, right? Because you cannot handle the, you know, the cash interest. Burden is what it is. So you fundamentally are going to have to have conviction that you can recap and take equity out after the fact or buy cheaper. Our clients would rather pay less. But what we've seen so far, and that's why 23 is really interesting, I love your views, Graham and Ram, which is when are we going to see a little bit of a give? Because I'm pretty enthusiastic about take privates. I'm pretty enthusiastic about corporate carve-outs for 2023. But it's all going to come down to meeting of the minds around valuation. And boards tend to be a little bit stuck. Private valuations tend to be slower to adapt. And so I'd love your views on how you think about the deal environment and where we can actually, where we'll actually see activity. Yeah, it's really interesting, Harold, because when you think about those opportunities that you've just talked about, 
I think about the P2P opportunity. I think it's a fantastic opportunity. I think certainly the challenge that we have at the moment is how long do those valuations stay where they are and how long do the debt markets remain relatively dormant and inaccessible to help finance some of those transactions. Ultimately, that comes back to finding different pockets of, of capital, whether that's the private debt capital market or whether it's the bank balance sheet market. Again, if we look at other dislocations historically, when the market comes back, it tends to be the best credits that come out first rather than the worst. That's an obvious statement. Uh, but you tend to see lower leverage. You tend to see greater bank balance sheet usage in some of those transactions. And of course, we now have this pool of private debt providers that can also support those transactions. So we're at an interesting sort of inflection point as to when the confidence comes back to make those buy decisions, whether they're public to privates or other transactions, when the confidence does come back, is the financing market going to be available? So to, let's talk. To we should talk about the debt markets. Remember, you want to, I mean, we should talk. We should talk about because that's uh, to your point, especially on the larger side for the largest transactions. If you don't have a, a well-functioning syndicated leveraged finance market, just difficult for a client base to transact, even with the private capital you mentioned. Yeah. I I totally agree, and I think a lot of these points are interrelated. I mean, we're talking about. When are the credit markets going to come back and be well-functioning? The lag and the dislocation between buyers and sellers with respect to valuation and confidence. You know, if we boil down the three things that I think I just heard you guys talk about. And all those will be important for a well-functioning market next year. And on the point on valuation, I mean, we've seen this over and over again. There's always a, a lag between valuations kind of normalizing. But with time, you know, 52-week highs go by on the public side. Uh, liquidity will be required on the private side. So I think that should come through. Look, on debt markets, I think my view, and I'd be interested in each of your views, is that there will be a new norm. These markets will come back. We talked about liquidity and people having to put money to work. I think will come back. I think just when there's a little bit of stability on where rates are going and there's a little more of normalization of, okay, this is where things are, I think we're going to see debt markets like we did guys five or 10 years ago, which is good markets, maybe not as robust as before, rates higher in terms a little bit more stringent, but still well-functioning. That's the key word. Yep. I completely agree. It's all about how well-functioning they are. And you're absolutely right. The new normal, the cost of capital, when we see stabilization around where the Fed is going with rates, I think that's exactly when it's going to be right for deal-making. Graham's spot on. Quality always leads us out of dislocation. Yeah. And so you should expect there to be well-capitalized, well-structured, and just unbelievably strong credits. And I think tends to be on the larger side as well. These are proven companies, companies that maybe have been private equity owned before that are now public. And that's, I think, assets that are being carved out that maybe are non-core from you know investment-grade rated corporates looking to kind of shore up their own balance sheets or have dry powder for their own M&A and divesting non-core assets. So I think we all agree that we're going to see a return of the uh, leveraged finance markets, both high yield and leveraged loans. Yeah, we should we'll spend a little bit of time talking about talking about fundraising. It's always such a such a um, interesting topic to so many you know of people probably listening to this and just generally in our industry, right? Because it, it drives so much of what we're talking about. You know, the dry powder numbers, you know, Rama's throwing them out there. They're they're in the trillions. They've been there for some time. Um, I think what we've seen this year is interesting. I think the fundraising, when when the year is settled, I think the amount of dollars raised will be comparable to last year. So you may say, well, that's the first time in this discussion we've actually said that 22 and 21 were comparable. <laughs> so that must bode well. 
Uh, and it does. It does. But what's interesting is, you know, two thirds of those fund uh, of, of of the funds that launched in 22 will not actually have their final close this year. And so there's a lot that's been pushed out into 23. And that's because I think in the last few months, we've seen a real slowing of ability of firms to raise. And that's including the mega funds. Now, most of them are are done at this point, And they're still like, you know, again, they're working through and they've done first closes. But a lot of these smaller firms that thought that they would raise uh, this year have not been able to. And so as you think about the deals that we're going to see next year, I think we will see more of a bifurcation between these larger funds getting larger. They continue to be able to drive massive amounts of fundraising with huge IR functions across all their asset classes, very diversified. Some of the smaller pure play buyout shops, mid-market in that market, again, still robust, still was a good year this year. It does pretend to be, and I love your views, I think it's, again, very crystal ball. It's really hard to know. But what are the types of deals we're going to see in 23 if you have a lot of these funds that just don't have the dry powder that they'd like to have to be able to deploy into maybe the middle market? I think just before we go on to that as well, I'd like to ask around, given your closeness to a number of the big pension funds who are LPs, part of this fundraising process, they've all obviously got an issue at the moment with the allocation of capital across all of the different asset classes that they invest in. There's a denominator issue at the moment. What are you hearing from from that client base around the fundraising aspect that we're talking about at the moment? It's a great question. On the one hand, I would say alts as an asset class are not going away because alts have actually served really well. And one of the advantages of alternatives and why I think we're going to continue to see that growth going forward is it does offer a lot of things that people like. It's not correlated risk. It actually is an inflation hedge. It has a lot of the attributes that any portfolio construction likes. So I think from that perspective, I'm quite bullish. On the other hand, though, this plays right into the point that Harold was talking about. Um, there's no doubt that LPs are being a lot more discerning in where they put their capital and yeah. how they put their capital, both where they put it, but how they think about it from a strategic perspective, too. Whereas I think you would have seen historically people spread those dollars out and and think of diversification in that way. I think they're being a little more thoughtful of where they put the dollars and the diversification comes in the various types of asset classes that they can play within those complexes. And so that is, I think, the trend that we've been seeing and it's really been magnified in the past year and I think we're going to see that continue. So I think LPs aren't going away. I just think they're being a little more discerning. So if I were also to make a another wager on this podcast, yeah. <laughs> I think the dollars towards private equity will continue to grow. The number of funds that we're going to see is going to slow down significantly. Yeah, no, I think, Ram, it's such an important point. And it's the corollary. It's not just the dollars are being deployed. It's where they're being deployed to. And I think what we've seen is that they're being deployed by pension plans and sovereigns and high net worth into names that they know, into names where they previously invested. And so the number of first-time funds is going to be, it's much harder to raise that inaugural fund unless you have a tremendous track record. So I do think that, again, I think there's going to be a place for younger funds and smaller funds. But now let's talk about exits. We're going to come in around $300 billion of exits this year. In the last decade, only two years have been lower than that, and that's 2012 and 13. Okay, so we've now established they're putting money into the ground because that's what our clients do. They find ways to deploy their money. They don't like to sit on cash. We know that. 
but they're not actually being able to exit. And I think that's a nice segue also to think about what's 2023 for the IPO market? Because you can't talk about sponsor monetizations without an IPO market. And we've used the term well-functioning with respect to the debt markets. I think we can all agree. Maybe, I don't know if the IPO market isn't, fun- it's just not, I don't know if it's not functioning, not well-functioning, poorly functioning, or just non-existent. But it feels like it's non-existent, at least for most of 2022. And you also, of course, have an incredible amount, a, a huge class of 2021 IPOs that our clients did, and they haven't been able to do follow-ons. So you haven't seen the monetizations, further monetizations for the ones that actually did go public because of the environment and because of where a lot of those stocks are trading. That's their path to liquidity. And of course, you've seen the pipeline grow into potential IPOs for next year, but it didn't happen this year. And how do you actually get your LPs to keep investing in your funds if you don't actually return capital to them, at least on a timely basis? Yeah, and it's an interesting dynamic as well, isn't it? The IPO exit versus either a trade sale or a tertiary LBO. The more options that are on the table for our clients, the greater the arbitrage between valuations in those different exit routes. And without an IPO market, you are left with a narrower exit route. And does that have an implication on valuation as well? So it's not a straightforward situation for our clients to have to deal with. You know, I chat regularly with the ECM guys in London. And certainly at the moment, when you look at what could potentially come to the market in 23 or 24, they're skeptical, I think, of the amount of demand that there might be for some of those names at the moment at valuation that sponsors would want to sell at. Yeah, I mean, this to me plays into a lot of the same themes actually that we've we've talked about in terms of when will the, a well-functioning market come back? What is required for that well-functioning market to come back? My personal view on the IPO market specifically, which comes into a lot of the factors we talked about with the credit markets and a little bit of stabilization will be required. And I think the point you made about the first big credit deals that come out are usually the best ones. I think that's the same in the IPO market. So the best companies will come out first and they'll usually have good discounts. IPO investors will make money. And when they start making money again, you'll start to see more IPOs. So I think that market will come back. I think the bigger question, I think that each of you came out with, which is a very good one with our client base, is there was a time when the public markets dwarfed the private markets. So that was an easy kind of way to exit. Today, the private markets are comparable to the public markets. So there are only so many companies that can go public and that will be well received to go public um, over time. So that'll be just an interesting question as we think about that exit route, which used to be kind of the base case, may not be the base case going forward. Harold, you raised it a little bit earlier. I'm seeing more inquiry around stakes in other public companies using strategic opportunities funds, to your point around the different asset classes that they can now invest in, or partnerships with corporates, those types of approaches. Minority. Minority state sales, those sorts of things are becoming far more prevalent. Um, Do you think we'll see more of that in 23 because of the dislocation? Is that a possibility? I mean, I I guess I would jump in, Graham, and just say that the proliferation of these strategic capital, flexible capital, tactical opportunities funds has exploded in the last few years. And I think if you're sitting as an investor in one of those funds right now, you're very excited about next year because that flexibility to solve problems 
for, whether it's sponsors or corporates that they have in their charter, which a lot of the other bio funds do not have, I think they're going to be overwhelmed with opportunities next year. And there's just going to be a question of like actually having to try to brush away all the you know opportunities to finger, figure out which ones you actually want to spend time on. And I think you're absolutely right. So I think to your earlier point, Ram, about the number of operational partners that our clients now have working within them and therefore the added value that they can bring to a corporate in terms of operational capability, M&A capability, is huge. And it also solves um, Harold's point, which is finding another way to do a transaction where one can one can see the exit a little bit differently than just selling to another private equity. So I think it fits all those things. There's lots of different challenges to the IPO exit route. And again, I think to your earlier point, I think that's why you see sponsors showing a preference for inter-trading between each other as opposed to necessarily going to the public markets. You've got that certainty of valuation. It's a complete exit. Um, you know, maybe if you really like the underlying business and you think it's got further to run, then maybe you can co-invest and roll forward as well through a continuation fund vehicle or whatever. So there are definitely different ways to look about it. But it also brings to mind some of the geographical differences that we see today in our markets. And I think one of the issues we have in Europe at the moment perhaps is I feel we're being hit a little bit harder perhaps in the US given our proximity to some of the major political issues that are going on on in Europe, particularly obviously the Russia-Ukraine crisis, the knock-on impact that that's had from an energy perspective. And I look at North America and see it as a little bit more insulated perhaps from some of those energy issues that we're facing in, in Europe. But it does, I think, mean that the immediate outlook in, in Europe for 2023 is highly volatile and potentially quite negative until we get through to a situation where we start to see some good news flow and we're not seeing a lot of good news flow. Well, that's an interesting point and it's an important point because, again, back to what we were just talking about, about the types of deals we may see in 2023, the one thing none of us have mentioned are those large-cap cross-border transactions or combinations. And that doesn't mean there won't be. If our client base is looking through a lens which is much more rose-colored in certain geographies versus others, it does probably portend to the difficulty in seeing large-scale European take privates by U.S. firms or by or combinations or the like. It's an issue. I, I actually, I love your views on that. I, I think, look, I think you're absolutely right. I spoke to a couple of clients in the last couple of weeks who've both expressed relatively negative views on Europe for 23, much more positive on North America, Canada. So there's definitely a view out there at the moment. There will be some regional variation, I think, as we go through 23. I think Europe will come back. It's a robust financing market historically, and it will return. And there's just as much dry powder floating around the system in Europe to keep that market healthy. It's really a question of getting past this uncertain period that we're in at the moment. I don't think any discussion among the three of us could be complete as we think about the private equity industry um, our role as bankers, you know, advising and financing our clients without, you know, at least some discussion on the private capital environment. And we've mentioned in passing as, you know, a way that our client base has, has thought about doing transactions, has used that pool of capital. I'd love your views as you think about 23, because we've certainly seen an up and to the right in terms of dry powder that they've raised in those private capital pools, the penetration that they've had in the overall, you know, syndicated leverage finance markets, kind of reaching about 25%, I think, at the top. Uh, as we go into this period that we've all been talking about and potential you know, uptick in defaults and some other you know, problems that they could have with their portfolios, 
Uh, I've certainly heard some views about you know the same have and have nots that we've talked about on the private equity yeah. side. Could you see something like that with the private capital arena? And what does that mean for sponsors as they look to more traditional financing sources? I guess I can call us traditional, right? And sitting in a bulge bracket, I guess. We're traditional. <laughs> I don't know what that makes them. Um, but uh, I love your views on, on how you think about that world in 23. You're talking about debt private capital Correct. specifically. Yeah. I think you kind of answered your own question. My, my personal view on that is that market isn't going away. I mean, that, that market's actually been growing for several years. And, and we've seen, especially in this dislocated period, I think those folks, you know, really kind of play a big role. But I, I have a view that in the same way that we're, we're talking about our equity clients, I think there's going to be have and have nots. I mean, on the one hand, some people won't be able to raise funds again, is my view, because I think you're going to see defaults and some investments that may have looked good that probably aren't good now. But I think you're going to see a lot of folks, by the way, some of our same private equity clients that are the ones that are the biggest uh, sure. folks in in, in um in this asset class. And I think this goes back to the LP point, actually, because you you know, you know, asked me about where LPs are investing. I think LPs are investing in fewer funds, but more complexes that can offer them more products. And this is an example. One-stop shopping. One-stop shopping. So this is an example. So they're able to get the exposure to various asset classes, including private debt. And so I, I don't see that going away. I think you're going to see a more GP to GP activity going into next couple of years. Some of our large multi-strategy clients are going to look out where they don't have or where there is a hole. There might be some very good niche GPs out there that will also look for a home because that's going to help them with their LP fundraising. So as I look, we look into trends in the next couple of years, as we've already seen, there's been some big ones. I think you're going to see more GP to GP, to your point, Harold. Yeah, I know, and that's why we say they're clients, because our financial institutions bankers are thrilled <laughs> to have that conversation, I'm sure, any day. And so uh, I, I, I don't disagree at all. I think it's going to be really interesting to see how that market, because if you think about it, it's still reasonably young. It's, right? it's, it, it's, it's grown so quickly. Um, it's matured quickly. But I still think that there's a lot more to a lot more to come in that market. And for, for us, you know, um, I think there's a lot of opportunity. There's a lot of ability, ways that we can partner with them, advise them, um, and to continue to compete with them, on certain, certainly in certain sectors more than others. One thing I do want to talk about as well uh, before we close is, as we think about the outlook, is we haven't really gone into any sectors. We haven't talked about specific sectors and where we think activity is going to be. In the, in the last... Five or six years, I think we've seen that tech and healthcare have dominated the landscape for financial sponsors. They've been the number one and number three sectors, respectively, in terms of wallet and fees paid to the street. Industrials right there in the middle at number two. Graham, do you have any views? And I love the European perspective. As you think about opportunities and where our clients are going to continue to deploy capital, do you think that those are the sectors that are going to remain at the top of the heap? Do you think there's going to be some variability there? I think at the start, um, as we talked about earlier, that you'll see the stronger segments come out first and healthcare and, and tech. Strong demand sectors will continue to function um, and therefore will draw a lot of attention. Uh, we've talked about multi-asset strategy stuff. The infrastructure side of our world in, in Europe continues to perform and I think the infrastructure space will stay strong. 
And I think that for all of the obvious macro reasons, the challenged areas are going to be, you know, consumer, retail, leisure, certainly in the near term. But at the same time, that can create opportunity, depending on the type of transaction you're trying to strike at that particular point in time. So I do think healthcare and tech will remain strong. I do think that we're in a strange macroeconomic environment on the back of a COVID-driven environment that was extremely healthy from a funding perspective for our clients. It's going to be interesting to see where they want to deploy now with a few to maximizing return, but perhaps minimizing risk. What about Canada? Because uh, um, certainly sitting in, this, in, in the U.S., a lot of our clients, uh, and they obviously turn to us as RBC, but um, are always really interested in being able to play across sectors uh, in Canada. Um, do you have a view, Ram, as to, you know, tech? I mean, te- Canada, tech, energy, Look, I I don't think it'll be massively different than what we've seen previously. Obviously, Canada has a hotbed for energy and and, uh, and resource sectors. But I think to your point on tech and healthcare, the trend in Canada has followed suit with what we've seen in the rest of the world. And the last few years, you know, we talked about IPOs and, and a lot of companies going IPO maybe a little bit too early or catching the wave. Um, but there's still a lot of good companies. So I think when we talk about P2P opportunities in Canada, um, I actually think a lot of them will be in healthcare and tech. And that there, there is a tremendous amount of opportunity there. Um, the other sector in Canada that won't surprise you is I think there's going to continue to be a lot in the infrastructure um, kind of services area where there's a lot of opportunity for our clients to put money to work. Yeah, I think that's well said. And certainly, you know, we're all very bullish on infrastructure. Um, it's just been proven incredibly resilient. And we've seen that this year. That should continue. And I don't disagree. As I think about sitting in the U.S., healthcare tends to be viewed as acyclical. And that's obviously an area where, you know, you want to kind of deploy. And if you have the, if you have the ability to do it and you actually have the know-how, uh, operating partners, you can look really smart buying healthcare right now. And so I, I don't disagree. I think 23 should be a very busy year. I think healthcare services will probably take a bigger piece of the pie versus maybe even healthcare tech, where there's been so much ACIT um, deployment in the last couple of years. What will be interesting, I think, is, you know, the industrial space as we come out of what I think we all expect to be a bit of a recessionary environment, particularly across Europe in the near term in 23, and what valuation opportunities that creates for people. Um, You know, there's been a big supply and demand imbalance that people have been living with for quite some time now through the impact of COVID on the supply chain. Um, I do think that there will be some some industrial opportunities, some aerospace and defence opportunity that come out of that as spending goes back into those segments and demand in those segments recovers. Um, So, you know, there's a... There's a lot to be positive about, I think, as far as 23 is No, I agree. And the one thing we've learned with cyclicals, it's all about when you buy. Another area where I think we're going to continue to see focus, to your point, Harold, is on energy transition. I think there's a lot of money that's been put to work from our LPs expecting our clients to think of ESG in everything they do. And there are some dedicated funds in that respect. And there's also just part of the overall flagship fund strategy. So more money is going to go into places where you're going to try to reduce carbon footprints and and things of the sort. And that's a good place, to your point earlier, Graham, where capital can be put to work where it's needed for corporates, uh, as an example, where that capital 
isn't there today, but there's a lot of pressure to do so. And, and I think that plays into valuation. So that's not a sector in and of itself, but I think it's a theme that's going to play into a lot of sectors. I think it's a theme and I think it's critical tying back into everything Ram, that we've talked about around fundraising. LPs are demanding that there's an ESG strategy. They care about it. They're asking about how our clients are thinking about it. Some of our clients are, are actually having ESG-dedicated funds. Some are just thinking about it in the context of how they're deploying capital and, and the types of transactions that they're, typing, they're doing with clean energy or otherwise governance, big areas. I think what we'll hopefully see in 23 is more of a industry-wide definition or standards of ESG. I still feel like most of the clients I talk to define it differently, which is, makes sense. Is still relatively, you know, new in terms of how they're thinking about it and how they're thinking about the sectors that actually qualify or they can characterize as ESG. And I think that will be interesting to watch because it's a big part of, I think, where our clients are going to focus on um, in the years to come. I agree. And look, all our clients have dedicated ESG teams now, not just working at the GP level, but helping at the portfolio level with the company Good management point. teams and helping drive their ESG functions and their ESG responsibility. You know, we've seen debt deals with ESG ratchets. There's a lot going on in that space. It's here to stay. It's a huge area for consideration going forward. We'll see a lot more of it. And it's nice for us, I think, at RBC and that, you know, we have dedicated energy transition teams across the globe now. There's a conference in London in the new year on EV transition and battery technology. There's a lot happening in that space. And when you link it back to some of the mining expertise that we have within the firm as well, what that means in battery technology and things like that, you know, it's it's a massive theme. Um, 100%. So... Um, listen, I think I think what we can all agree on, there won't be any wagers on this, is that we, uh, we're very fortunate to be able to you know, lead private equity coverage at a global firm like ours. And we cover some of the you know, most exciting and innovative sponsor clients who are going to absolutely look to put money to work in this environment. And of course, we're well situated to help them. So I think the one thing we can say, regardless of geography or sector, is that we're incredibly bullish about our client base and our client base's ability to make money, continue to raise capital, and continue to hopefully use us on everything that they do, because that's what gets us excited about when we wake up in the morning. This content is based on information available at the time it was recorded and is for informational purposes only. It is not an offer to buy or sell or a solicitation, and no recommendations are implied. It is outside the scope of this communication to consider whether it is suitable for you and your financial objectives.